Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is 9.15 here on Wednesday, September 20th. We are doing our, like, maybe first live recording session since the first month of doing the podcast. Um, Coming to you from our studio here in South Boston. Yes. A.K.A. my kitchen. But, uh... This is fun. Yeah. A little spicing it up for the podcast. Welcome to a new era of the Gentleman's Disagreement as we enter year four of recording, which I was, as I was walking over here, I was in my head being like this. I think this is almost year four. And we hadn't, it hasn't been quite four years yet since we put out our episodes, but it's been about four years since we started recording. And our plan four years ago was that we were going to record in person every single time. In the first series of episodes, we did that. And then one episode, one of us was busy and we're like, all right, let's try it on Zoom. And then from that point forward, it was just, as Zoom made things far more convenient for far more, too many people in so many ways, we just got used to doing things remotely and that was great i think it's worked well i'm sure we'll continue to do things remotely and on zoom and we appreciate that ability to do that but it's kind of nice being back in person too yeah definitely has been like the the path of least resistance but in just like i think people are finding out if they work remotely there are certain things that you just can't can't get yeah being person. <laughs> I think one of those things is that we end up not being exactly on time, which we all already struggle with, but you and I sat down and we we're like, all right, we'll, we'll I'll be there around seven forty five and we'll start shortly after that. It's an hour and a half later. And it's the beauty of being in person, but perhaps a potential pitfall that we'll have to look out for. Yeah, indeed. I'm hoping that I will at least figure out this microphone recording situation slightly uh more easily next time around but yeah well we 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 invested in this and if you get our newsletter and we hope that everyone listening subscribes to our newsletter if you don't you can send us a dm or if you know us you can uh, text or an email at a gentleman gentleman can disagree at gmail.com but we sent out a, a newsletter every month and in this in the newsletter last month we said we're making some investments in the pod keep an eye out and this is one of those investments credit to you for doing it and we hope that it sounds even better for, for people out there. And we would love to get feedback that people have. If it does sound better, please let us know. And if it doesn't, also let us know that because we'll continue to work on it. This this entire experience has been a work in progress, and we just assume that it will continue this way for the foreseeable future. Yeah, definitely. For, oh, man. Someone pointed out to me that I say definitely a lot on the podcast. But that... Is clearly not changing. <laughs> That's definitely not going to change. <laughs> that is yeah. definitely not going to change. But four years in, it feels like you know we're graduating the high school version of podcasting into into maybe our our freshman year of, of college podcasting. We'll see how it goes. Great year, a lot of a lot of learning that went on that year too. So <laughs> yeah. I imagine that this will be the same. But it's it's good to be back with you. We're catching you in between vacations. So thanks for taking some time with us today. I know I've been I've been all over the place. I actually you know I really wanted to FaceTime you into my little my last little trip down to Delaware. 
Um, went and spent some time on the Delaware beaches, Rehoboth and Dewey Beach, if anyone is familiar. And I, this is my second year going. My in-laws uh, have frequented this place throughout from, you know, back in their college days, some, some back to child, childhood. And the one thing I really felt as we were walking around on this boardwalk of this little beach town, although the prices have definitely kept up with inflation, yeah. but everything else is like, you know, you've got like the candy shop, you've got this, some ice cream place that says from 1919, like this is... This is going to sound like a very weird thought, but in my head, when people are, you know, the MAGA, the make America great again, like when they are thinking about America, to me, this is what they're thinking about. There's just something like very wholesome, yeah. but very American sounds, sounds about this place. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> who, who wouldn't want they that? They got yeah, caramel, yeah, caramel yeah, corn yeah. going on the beach. They yeah. have candy land and rides and whatever else but it uh, 1950s america that's yeah. america's heyday exactly. right yeah. unfortunately it just wasn't for everybody but there were it's, a lot of uh things that were uh very nice about it, it just yeah it was a, wholesome it was a very i nice think trip. that was the right word for wholesome, it indeed yes. all right that being said what uh what are we talking about this week well i feel like whenever we have a little bit of a break and especially if you listened to that last episode when we came back we said that there was a, a lull in like the political space because Congress had been at recess and there wasn't a ton going on. Well, Congress has been back in a big way over these last few weeks. So we're going to do a 6 and 60. We're going to split it evenly the, between domestic and foreign affairs. The first three will be focused on domestic issues. We're going to talk about the United Auto Workers strike. We're then going to talk about the Biden impeachment. That seems like we're on this inevitable path. We're going to talk about... What's going on with Speaker McCarthy in the House in conjunction with the potential impeachment, uh, President Trump making some news in the abortion space, and then we'll go abroad, talk about a meeting that Russia and North Korea had, the prisoner swap between Iran and the United States, and we'll conclude with looking at a couple of natural disasters in Africa. So hopefully something out there for everybody, people who are interested in domestic, you get your first half, you're more interested in foreign affairs, you're your second half, and hopefully we can keep we have enough listeners that are interested in both and we'll, we'll keep you around for the whole hour that's it the six and sixty we try and get a little bit of something for everybody exactly before we do jump into it a quick reminder the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at cannon hill woodworking they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in boston since 2018 that's Cannon with two ends you can check them out on instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com Ricky, our first topic today is going to be dealing with this this strike, so I want to tell you a story. I once bought a wooden car. Wooden engine, wooden doors, wooden wheels, wooden seats. I put the wooden key in the wooden ignition, wooden start. Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm glad there was no trivia component yeah. to that. But no, there was not. No, I don't want to put you on the spot in our first in-person in a little while. That's that's not bad. No, thank, thank you. That's, that's about as much praise as I get these days. All right, let's get into it. So even though we have another potential impeachment coming down the road, arguably these days it's not the biggest story. The biggest story, I would argue, in the last week has been this United Auto Workers strike. It's a big strike and a big deal already with the potential just to become 
just to become bigger, really, in, in these next potentially weeks and months. So people are, are probably aware, but the United Auto Workers are a, a union uh, made up of laborers in uh, auto factories. And they're striking against three, the kind of the big three, which is four General Motors and Starlantis, which I didn't, I, when I first saw that, I was like, what is that? And I did a, a little bit of research. Chrysler sold, Chrysler got sold to Fiat and then Fiat sold to this other, like a, a more an Italian, a European company. And now collectively they're Starlantis. So they're, they're the UAW are uh, striking against these three companies. They have a really unique strategy where they decided to strike at one plant in for each of the big three in three different states. So in one in Michigan, one in Ohio, one in Missouri. What are they asking for? Great question. Uh, the union has asked for forty percent base hike, base pay hike. In addition to that, they want a restoration of defined benefit pensions which they had been phased out back during the Great Recession, 2007-2008. They want a 32-hour work week compensated at 40-hour pay and a guarantee that workers will continue to be paid even if the plant employing them permanently closes. So those are, those are their demands. Probably not shocking that the, the automakers have not uh, met those demands. They've offered, it seems at most, a 20% base pay increase without those other, the litany of other things that the the workers want. The the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, has, has pursued a really interesting strategy. Not only is this the first time that they're collectively striking, uh, striking against the big three, but also that they're doing so in a drawn out fashion where, so there's just the three plants that they're striking out net, at now, but if things don't go better, this strike will expand next week and the week after that and the week after that. And he's basically threatening to drag this out over the course of months. What I saw was that the union right now has enough, they've, they, they've accumulated enough money to pay all of their workers for 11 weeks. So almost three months if, if they want to really string this out, which credit to them in some ways. But I, Ricky, so we have the, the labor issues here, and then we also have the political issues here, which are, I think, super interesting, where you have President Biden, who's been Union Joe. He's been the he likes to tout himself as the most union American president in, in history. And he that's so that's one big part of his his platform of the last three years and his platform heading into his campaign is Union Joe rebuilding the middle class. Simultaneous to that is the the Joe that's fighting climate change and that's pushing us towards electric vehicles. And all of these things are coming together in this into really fascinating mix. So where, where do you want to start? Whether you, Do you want to start with the business side of things, the political side of things? I'm curious on your thoughts. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure where to start. I do think that this particular strike, and we've talked a little bit about labor issues. We've had uh, folks like Rand on uh, on the podcast before, and certainly if you're interested in in the broader label, labor movement in the U.S., I think that's a great episode to check out. But I... I want to say that before we jump into this, this particular issue deserves probably it's an, an episode unto itself. I'll say that I think one of the things to keep in mind, because this is like the demands of the union are a great way of saying, look at these unreasonable people. There was destroying, uh, you know, the workforce in America, making America uncompetitive. I think, 
you know, as Donald Trump would sort of say, you don't go to the t- negotiating table with what you want to leave with. Yeah. You got to go with some strong demands. And when you leave in the middle, you're actually happy because you get more or less what you want. I don't think they believe 40% increases are on the table. I don't think they believe a four-day work week in and of itself, you know, to get paid for five days is strictly speaking on the table. But their broader point is these companies have enjoyed record profits over the past four or five years, certainly had a dip during the pandemic, but really came back very, very strong. And the guys at the top paid themselves out and now the workers want their cut. And I think the the leader of this movement is um, Sean Fain. It ha- is taking a very antagonistic approach. Yeah. We'll see how that plays out for him and for the union um, unions are more popular now than they have been probably in my lifetime um, which is an interesting time and I think how this plays out will determine sort of the next 10 to 15 years of the of kind of the union-based labor movement in the United States so I think it's this is a very big deal in many ways I don't know which way it's going to go um, but it's definitely something to keep tabs on. Sure. You, you mentioned that union support is riding high right now and it hit 70. So just on a, a basic question of for the American people, do you support unions? 71% supported them a year ago, which was the high since the 1950s. I think it hit seven, 75% in the 1950s when we know that overwhelmingly the American workforce was unionized. But now up, it, if you look at the graph, it hits 19, like 75% in the 1950s and goes down steadily really until 2018 where it starts to rise. It hit 71% last year uh, and it was at 67% this year, which is... Uh, exceeded the long-term average, which is at 62% since they've been tracking this. So the, the support for unions, whether it's, it's the autom- particular automakers or the writers' strike, the writers' guild are, are striking too, and there's just a general sense that this is a really good time for unions. And I think one of the reasons that has come up is because this discrepancy in executive pay versus the the rank and file, the blue-collar worker, is that's been matting to people. And one of the, the beauties of the news media ecosystem that we live in now is those things which, one, they didn't really exist to this extent. I think this inequality didn't exist through much of the 20th century, but then when it did, now it's it's exposed. People people know, and so people are well aware that, that the people putting the cars together are making you know $64 an hour, which is maybe seems like a lot, and then you look at GM's CEO is making $29 million. And Sean Fain's pointing out to, not only has inflation been crazy, as we all know very well over the last few years, but car prices have outpaced inflation. So it's, it's allowed these car companies, these big three, to make incredible profits. And Sean Fain and the United Auto Workers are saying, well, where's our cut? Yeah, th- this is something that is a part of this entire discussion that's a little bit confusing because in some ways previously it had just been how many cars can we turn out that's going to determine our profit because the car prices are basically determined by the market each segment you know whether you're a luxury car or sort of a more family-sized car they all have sort of price points that they sell at but what happened during the pandemic during this 
semi, uh, semiconductor and the chip shortage is that all of a sudden cars became a scarce commodity yeah. in a way that they had never been. Love, love the market. Right? Yeah, yeah. So oh, people yeah. were able to sell used cars in some instances yes. for higher prices than new cars, yeah. um, which is insane, obviously, because the old adages, as soon as you drive the car off the lot, it's worth half as much. No, well. people were sending me emails. That I, I bought a used car in 2019, and I was getting emails from the dealership being like, we will buy it back for more than you just bought it like several years ago. <laughs> it's incredible, but what am I going to do? I mean, obviously, what am I going to do? I'm going to sell it and then I have, to, I have to go buy a new car. But, but I, to your point of the appreciation of used cars was insane. Right. And But that, that also drove up the fact that new cars could sell over yeah. MSRP, yeah. which is a situation that dealerships and you know the the car uh, the car manufacturers that own them or that basically run them hadn't experienced in a long time. So all of a sudden you could start to see higher profit margins on fewer cars manufacturer because of the supply demand imbalance. And obviously it's a bit of a short term situation. Yes. Which yes. CEOs, you know, right. in terms of yeah. corporate buybacks and uh, stock bonuses, additional incentives and stuff like that can take advantage of, but rarely trickle down to the worker because the problem is, well, I can't raise your wage because in two years when I can't get these profits, right. now all of a sudden I'm going to be in trouble. Right. So this is the... That's the impasse. I mean, that's... That's yeah. the impasse. Yeah. And that's and that's really the tension and where unions have been great in the past is that they've been able to negotiate sort of these long-term gains instead of like, here's a spot bonus because we're doing well, you get to do well too. But the... The flip side is in these situations, yeah, all of a sudden you have a strike. And I think maybe as we wrap up this segment to just mention exactly what you said on Joe Biden being Labor Joe, that this is potentially a big problem because of the outsized impact that the car industry has on American economy as a whole. Uh, Yeah, it's not going to be classic live recording in a... Uh, need to get some soundproofing. <laughs> um, but right, so the, the the problem, of course, is that you you can't that these two things are now in conflict, and then throw in the election year, and all of a sudden you've got a moment for labor, maybe where they're like, yeah, a lot gross. of leverage here. Yeah, somebody throw us a bone, and either Biden go go press on some CEOs or. Trump, what do you got? Right. And I think the politics of it are increasingly fascinating because traditionally it was Democrats were the pro-union Democrats and Republicans were like the pro-business side of things. And as Rand, so Ricky alluded to this uh, a previous episode we did last December with Rand Wilson, this is episode 73, if you're into, we talked about the union movement in general and Rand has been in that movement for 50 years. So it was a great perspective in history highly recommend the episode but uh that's what Rand was talking is that it's become really interesting politically where democrats in some ways have you some people would argue have walked away from the working class as Rand said in all but their rhetoric and republicans are increasingly becoming like the party of the the populist party the par, par, party of like the blue collar working class and speaking to that president biden's in a very difficult situation president trump who's more free to do what he wants I would certainly argue he's been no friend to the unions throughout his business career, but he's going to go rally in Michigan and he'll say that, like, I'm your guy. I'm, I'm the one here for you. And so I, I just think politically it's it's interesting in a way. It, it's 
like almost everything, every issue is these days where it's it's no longer the same kind of cut and dried. You know where this politician stands, you know where this politician stands. People within the Republican and Democratic parties are standing on different sides of this, which is, again, it makes it fascinating for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously we're, we're here at the beginning of this um, situation unfolding and depending on how long it's protracted, I think there there can be... You know, there's a lot to be gained and potentially a lot to be lost in terms of public perception, both for presidential candidates, but also for unions. I think in many ways they were seen or scapegoated in large part to, to sort of a declining U.S. auto industry yeah. in the 80s um, and early 90s as well. So how <laughs> this plays in this particular moment where we're really seeing a transition in the auto industry, right, from gas powered to electric vehicles where we do have a lot of sort of domestic capital that if we're able to to sort of seize the moment as cliche as that sounds um there could be a lot for us to gain both here and abroad but it's got to be some kind of uh connection between labor and and sort of and the capital class as it were (laughs) Classic. Uh, well, we went a little bit long on that. Ricky's right. That could probably take a whole episode. And, and maybe if, if this drags on, we'll give it a whole episode in a couple of weeks. I think for a lot of reasons, I hope that it doesn't. I hope that it gets solved. But it's, it's one of those things, anytime you have a, a really proper strike, it does nothing looks like it will get solved until all of a sudden everything is solved. And it'll be, it'll be we're headed for a disaster until we're not. And so we'll, we'll hopefully that'll come sooner than later. Speaking of heading for a disaster, uh, topic number two is President Biden looks like he will be impeached by the House in the coming months. Say looks like because Speaker Kevin McCarthy came out earlier this week and somewhat stunningly in the sense that he had for a long time been adamant that he wasn't going to do this and then then it became more likely that he might but then it was like the almost the first day back the house was in session he announces that he's he has directed the chairs of the committees who are all republicans because they control the house to begin impeachment inquiries what's so <laughs> the levels of hypocrisy here ricky are, are, are incredible uh, i guess i'll start with this is that in 2019, uh, Speaker Pelosi went ahead with the first impeachment of President Trump, and she did it almost exactly like this. And at the time, Speaker McCarthy and Republicans were like, hey, if you want to impeach him, take a vote. Get everyone, get out get out there, get on the floor, put it on record. Are you in favor of impeaching him? Speaker Pelosi didn't want to put her most vulnerable, moderate members to that vote, and so she went ahead and did it this way. And McCarthy and Republicans were all up, up in arms that, like, about the, the norms that she was violating. Four years later, she was on the other foot. That's exactly what's happening here. It's If this goes ahead and it seems now like you can say that, hey, we're just doing the investigation and we're just making it a little bit more official, even though they've really been investigating President Biden since they took over the House. Uh, it seems inev- that this will inevitably lead to at least a vote on impeachment, if not that President Biden will be impeached in the House. And he will then have been the fourth president in American history and third of the last five to have been impeached. That's where we are these days. <laughs> yeah. Huh. yeah, the I do appreciate the like the we have the receipts type of uh, era that we live in yeah. now where a Democratic congressman will like print out on a giant poster board the tweets from McCarthy basically saying that what he is doing because Pelosi did it as you mentioned is completely uh 
yeah, it's disregarding all precedent. And yeah. It's just like not supposed to be done. Um, which it, I mean, right, whatever. I I sort of said this about precedent um, at the at some point in the middle of in the middle of Trump's tenure, which is that it doesn't really <laughs> count for anything. And at one point, it was maybe like a really nice feature of our democracy that in many ways we didn't have to put these things make rules about these things that everyone sort of just abided by them but i think you've also been right to point out that like we all we have the rose colored glasses in that in many ways yeah so many precedents that we think yeah about are sure sure but like that that's it's inevitably like, indisputably true that between andrew johnson in 1865 and Bill Clinton in, in 1998, we have no one impeached for 130 years. And and you can argue whether Clinton should have been impeached. I think fair arguments either way. But it would be very hard to argue that President Trump's first impeachment was well done. And this it, this seems like the worst. You know, it's, it's one another example to me of just a race to the bottom. Ken Buck, who's a Republican from Colorado Freedom like Caucus member, wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post. And he pretty much lays out what... I think the vast majority of rational people who follow this said is that like we can all agree and you you said this to your credit on the very last episode when we talked about equal justice under the law and we mentioned hunter biden and you were like i'm not defending hunter biden like that dude is super shady i think you could probably say worse than that that he, he could be corrupt in some ways the the way that he got some money over in ukraine is is certainly suspect but republicans have been investigating and trying to find the smoking gun for over a year now like officially in many years before that and they, there's nothing in there there's no evidence that president biden had really anything to do with it aside from maybe he was on the phone with his son naturally at times when hunter biden was also meeting with some of these shady business figures international business figures and it's not like a great look but the fact that this is leading to impeachment is just – I think Buck calls it a – he said, called it a disgrace, and I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think additionally, you know, the people that are leading the charge on this, McCarthy, you know, sort of – even maybe like the way that he's using this to toss a bone to far-right Republicans yeah. who were – are probably more – in favor of impeachment than not are probably like, well, this isn't necessarily the right time. We want to be shutting down the government over other stuff, the budget discussion notwithstanding. And this particular, like the culture of corruption is, is one that is like more or less laughable given how Trump ran his administration, <laughs> given like who has really like, you know, risen within the within the republican side of that of congress it's i mean you know we can talk about hunter biden all we want jared kushner also has plenty of very similar types of dealings money from saudi arabia wherever access to things that he probably shouldn't really have had yeah, access yeah. to and he was forcefully and openly granted access to via the president whereas hunter biden is sort of like seemingly just used his his father's connections right. to get money from places that he probably shouldn't have gotten right. money from. Yeah. As you said, all of these are bad things. All of them are probably most damaging to the aura of this of the yes. presidency yes. that like we have, 
you know, when we talk, tell tales of George Washington yeah. and I can't tell a lie, and then all of a sudden we are here where, you know, everywhere you turn, you seemingly can connect somebody to some degree of corruption, yeah. the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Obviously, Congress, men and women sitting on committees where they're approving things for companies that they hold stock in, right? right. There's all sorts of things that are just making it, like, in so many ways, we felt like we were above that fray. And now the great degree of transparency we have is showing us that yeah. maybe we're not that much. So, like, it's not good. Will it go anywhere? Probably not. It's a waste of everyone's time. It's right. stuff that we should actually be doing. And if it gets to the Senate, now the Senate has to conduct their third trial in in four years. Like, it just, it's, yeah, I think the whole thing's disgraceful. But you briefly, I want to briefly follow up on something you said is McCarthy is still trying to desperately hold on to the speakership that he barely got back in January. The, the far right who have been dying to impeach Biden since he took office, Marjorie Taylor Greene put articles of impeachment forward on his first day in office that she's quite proud of. They're, they're the ones saying that you have to do this or we're going to threaten your speakership. And so McCarthy does this. Also looming in 10 days is a potential shutdown of the government. It looks almost assuredly. I know I said this back with the debt ceiling in May that I don't know if we're going to get there. The only reason we averted the debt ceiling in May was because of deals agreed to for, for September, the appropriations process. Doesn't look like we're going to get that. So I would be stunned if we, if we didn't have a shutdown and if McCarthy's speakership is not at least voted on in the next 10 days. It definitely seems like we're heading that way. And, man, that, that word is just haunting me today. Um, <laughs> well, now, it's been put in your head now. Yeah. Now I can't unhear yeah. it. Um, the, but it seems inevitable, right? I mean, the, I, I guess there was some quote that behind, behind closed doors, he was basically like, you know, put my speakership yeah, yeah. up to a, a vote then. He used yeah. some colorful language yeah. that... Oh, I'm you. generally not above using on no, this you're podcast, not. Yeah. since Brendan's mom may be listening, I'll no, work, that's nice. Uh, yeah, I'll, I will restrain myself. So but um, I think that that's also just an interesting place to be, where you've had this far right contingent basically sort of hold their nose and let him take the speakership, which for some reason has been his dream job over the last like two years, and then. Every time they, you know, have an opportunity to do something like this with the debt ceiling, then they bring his speakership back into question. And clearly, this lack of leadership is a problem. I mean, you you talked about it during Nancy Pelosi's run that, like, you've got these, like, the far-left uh, yeah. Democrats. I think... Oh. Yeah. The, the, the pause. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess without revealing my bias, it still feels like a different situation. I think it's often too easy to just say, well, these are the same as those because they kind of are, you know, disruptive in whatever they're in, in their own way. I don't think that that is an accurate portrayal. No, I would agree. But yeah, to many, it seems the same. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. We had we had we had a lot of fun stuff hanging over our heads. Hi, uh, but 
from my Kevin, we wanted to get into briefly President Trump, who made some interesting comments regarding abortion that you wanted to discuss. Yes, I thought this was fascinating. So basically, he was on, I think it was Meet the Press or something with NBC, right, yeah. um, asked about sort of the federal, you know, what he would sort of propose, or no, actually asked about Florida's six-week abortion ban. He basically said, I think it was a terrible idea. And I am paraphrasing, but not, he was sort of less concerned with the amount of time, which obviously anybody who is uh, in favor of abortion rights would see six weeks and be horrified. But he was more concerned about how it plays towards the electorate. Yeah. And I think yeah. he was thinking about the broader general election, oh, sure. right? Yeah, As yeah. he has sort of dismissed his Republican yes. challengers. But I, I think that this is actually a very interesting point in that, you know, in many ways in evangelical circles, in many ways, right, his appointing of the Supreme Court justices that he was able to appoint in his short term made him sort of a hero of the pro-life yes. movement. Yeah. And now he's... Not exactly walking away, but I think he's always had this kind of pragmatism towards oh, abortion. Yeah. Right? And but he hasn't had to say it. He hasn't had to say it in a long time. That like he's not the pro life guy no, that, he is not. that people want him to be, right? No. He was a pro choice Democrat in two thousand and whatever before he decided to run the way that he ran. And I actually on this issue, I think I think it's a smart play as he looks towards the general election. I think it is a smart play. I think it may also be a big problem for him early on. Yeah, it's it's tricky because you would think if it was going to be a problem for him, it would be a problem for him in the primary and in states like Iowa that still that are still hugely that evangelical. Their own six weeks. No, exactly. And who 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 believe in this? Like the electorate, the Republican electorate there, who believe in, in strongly they're pro life. But the thing is, is as you said, he's looking past this primary. He he knows that he's up fifty points on DeSantis and his, and his closest rivals, and he's already pivoted. And so, while you would think it would make sense, and historically, traditionally, it would it would have hurt him. It doesn't anymore. But to me, as as potentially smart as as it is politically, and I've always kind of given him credit politically, like he's. I think it would be hard not to. Like, whatever you think about him, the, the success he's had is, is a credit to him. But this, I mean, this is just another example of he doesn't. He just has no. He has no principles at all, right? Like, like it. We all knew that you. I mean, certainly you and I knew that he was never a, a pro-life guy. Like, I mean, that's just not how he lived his whole life publicly. But then he can. He loves being able to take credit, and when he's running in twenty twenty, he can say, "Look." everything that you guys wanted for 50 years. I'm the one that made it happen with the three justices that I put on. And he's not wrong about that. And so he can go to like his the, the base there, the all the pro-life people who, the evangelicals who we sat there four years ago, or I guess seven years ago now, and said like, how could they vote for this guy? That they're, they're God-fearing people, true, truly God-fearing people. And then you vote for this guy who seems such like the antithesis of that. But why did they hold their noses? Because he was going to be able to, he would be the one to deliver what they'd been waiting for for 50 years. And he did that. And so now it's just like the, 
kind of the brazenness to be like, yeah, I don't really care about that at all. And he, he views it like he views business, right? And that's what he kind of said in the Meet the Press interview was like, I would get people together and we would negotiate. And they'd be like, all right, what weeks? He's like, I don't know. We have to find what works. You'd want something that would be kind of good for the pro-life people and kind of good for the pro-choice people. We'll just make the best deal possible. And if you're a true believer in either of those sides, if, if you truly believe like it, that life begins at conception or that we should protect all viable life, you're not for negotiation here. And if you truly believe in pro-choice and women, these are women's bodies, government should have nothing to do with it, you're also not for negotiation. So as much as it might, it softens him and he might be able to dodge like, oh, I'm not some extremist because he's actually not an extremist in, in this situation. It's, it doesn't satisfy the, really anybody. I, I that well that is that's that is true that most of the people who have strong opinions on this issue are not interested in some kind of compromise. compromise yeah. That which is I think in on an, in an issue in an area like this I also think that's entirely fine. I think in addition to that though he's seen the writing on the wall within the Republican electorate right he's seen what happened in Kansas when they had a referendum he's seen what happened in basically any place where abortion rights were on the ballot right so his cal and I think additionally his calculus is this my I had an unholy alliance with the or really evangelicals had an unholy alliance yeah. with Trump in order to get the overturn of Roe. Whether or not they are on board this time around, I don't know is if that's going to be as materially impactful as you might have thought, or as it might have been in 2016 when he was a lone man in a crowded field at sort of an unknown in a crowded field and a heavy underdog. As the favorite, his base I don't think is as tied to abortion in either direction as they are to some of these tough on China, sort of America first, blah, 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 other policies, right? Whether or not he believes those and to what degree, I think is, <laughs> is certainly also up for debate. But I think on this issue, the reason that I think it is shrewd is, is exactly that, that even in sort of the, the Republican heartlands, that you would expect this to be a very cut and dry issue. It's not, and in many ways, it has leaned in the other direction where a DeSantis or a, basically half the field except for Nikki Haley is on board with the six-week ban right. at a federal level, which A, is a waste of time, and B, is not necessarily what the majority of people want or even even like a, like a whatever, a, a good... A good chunk of people want that that that's going to be problematic for any of and i think he can i think he can sell that message like do you want do you think someone like desantis is going to be able to bring you a bring you the presidency when this is what he did in florida and we know how the majority of the country feels about it yeah you sell it both ways right you sell desantis as the extremist on the right and you sell biden as the extremist on the left even though i don't think biden is that way either you sell him as he he's for abortion up until the moment of birth right and like that's he's the real extremist here and desantis never wants to let you have an abortion even in these terrible instances so yeah as i said um, the, his political instincts are first and foremost amongst his his gifts these days all right, that's our that's our domestic segment. Uh, stick around; we'll we'll go abroad. Coming up next.
last week, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, went to Russia for an international visit with the, the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin. This got on my radar for a couple of reasons. One, I just think things geopolitically are so interesting right now. And obviously it wasn't as static as we like to make it seem for the 20th century. But for much of the 20th century, you had the, the main European powers. You had the Russian Empire, the British Empire, German Empire, French Empire. Those kind of, maybe if you want to throw in the Spanish or Portuguese empires, but you really the major European powers up until World War One, And then post-World War One, you have Germany... Well, when Germany starts rearming themselves, then you have the United States coming along in the Soviet in in the Soviet Union. Post World War II, it's the United States and the Soviet Union for years. Then post fall of the Soviet Union, you really have the United States un- unchecked in their dominance for a couple of decades. But now we're in such a fascinating place with the rise of China and the 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 rise of India in some ways, and Russia's kind of fall, but then reemergence. And I thought. Kim Jong-un going to Russia was really interesting because Russia for years has been one of the most powerful, I mean, there's decades, hundreds of years really, has been one of the most powerful countries in the world. And just like when Xi Jinping went and visited Putin, Xi Jinping was there because Putin needed him. And to me, in a lot of ways, we have Kim Jong-un, this dictator of this tiny little country is going to Russia because Russia needs them. And so I thought that dynamic was interesting. So that's one for me. Two, this is, talk about unholy alliances before the break. This is as unholy as you get between uh, Putin and and Kim Jong. Uh, That's potential for, for real danger there. Three, I think you could fairly argue that this is a an, an example of failed U.S. policy towards both places, but maybe particularly to North Korea. Which, if any of those three, do you want to build off of? I'll take failed U.S. policy for two hundred. <laughs> um, I think I I think you hit the nail on the head there. In in really the only thing that's noteworthy here is all of a sudden now you've had. Three of the world's remaining nuclear powers, Russia, China, North Korea, have sort of a reason to be allied in a way that probably pre-invasion of Ukraine, you didn't. And when, and I I mean, I, I feel like I keep coming back to this. Nobody is sort of the Dr. Evil in their own story, yeah. right? Like as much as we would like to frame this discussion as well obviously they're all evil people they would get together and be this evil superpower it does seem like that it doesn't does, it like, though like, it does, like you, you do caricatures of, of <laughs> she and putin and kim and the, you're like oh yeah. of course in the way that we're sort of told the story in the way that it yeah, yeah. works for us this is exactly you know it's the new axis of evil yes that would, in it, my notes right yeah. right problem of course is that the reality is a little bit different and the reality is just that now as a going from a world where it was us and then our strong ally israel our strong ally france uh you know our pretty strong ally india uh pakistan who okay maybe we're a little bit unwary about how they're going to do things but we have india right there and obviously 
you know, what, the lengths that we've gone to to keep nuclear weapons out of the hands of Iran, now all of a sudden these disparate sort of uh, factions that all kind of had reasons to both point nuclear weapons at us but also at yeah. each other now have a unifying sort of force. And the force is that, un unfortunately, it's that if you're, like, not with the U.S., then you're squarely against it. And that is how we have been treating all of these other countries, whether we like what they're doing or not. And obviously, like, you have to say it every time that, that this does not, this is not an endorsement of what they're doing in their countries. This is not to say that they're doing the right yeah. things or that we support them and we want them to, like, prosper right. or whatever, you know, make their way of living... Uh, <laughs> uh, proliferate proliferate that is the word i was looking for um but like we yeah we just have to acknowledge that like the idea of well we're just going to sort of call you evil sanction you and just hope that you go away and or it, it's it's not i don't think it's the policy and so then what are we left with where we're left with with people who we would hope would not come together coming together and yeah you were right to start there with the the with china going to russia first but north korea going um it it you wouldn't say you feel safer about it no no and that's where i think like as as an academic and quasi historian i i feel like this is super interesting just geopolitically but as a citizen of this country in particular, and a citizen of the world in general, I think the world is, is far less safe now. And it's, I think it's easy and perhaps fair to say that it's less safe because of these three gentlemen, she, Kim, and, and Putin. But to abdicate responsibility for that would be a mistake. And the United States, this is one of the things I think we've, we've come over the last few years to find that we actually really agree on is that we should just deciding to isolate people that we countries that we disagree with is not a good idea but look how we've treated north korea trump aside and trump's volatility presented its own set of problems but for through you know the biden obama bush administrations probably before that too this was just a strategy of isolate this country cut them off sanction them sanction them sanction them and so what do you have we say you can't build nuclear weapons and so we isolate you from the rest of the world we starve your people there's no there's no food there's no jobs there's no medicine in your country and give up your nuclear weapons well so what and then i'm not going to talk to you until you do that well what's the incentive really for for us to engage at all and now all of a sudden kim looks around and putin's looking to extend a hand well now he can just walk right into into that relationship and i, I think it, to me this is a, a huge failure that we're not going to we've and this is as you said it feels like you have to put so many disclaimers and qualifiers around this this isn't that i want to just that we should have been going to kim jong-un and giving him whatever he wanted but this is to say that to not engage with him at all and just say you either have to give up your nuclear weapons or your country is going to starve naturally people are going to look around and see if they can find other allies well he's found one right i i that i think that sort of the premise of if we label you as evil the rest of the world will follow is the one that is now being tested it's being tested at the un general assembly right like the idea that we used to be able to get up in front of people and say 
what is happening in XYZ place is wrong and we should all, democracy, freedom-loving people of the world, yeah. come together to say, you know, no more of this. And I think, unfortunately, because in, in many ways that we don't have the same – like our principles don't apply equally, right? Like we've talked about the relationship with Saudi Arabia and other places and, and other things that we've done in the past where – Okay, a democratically elected leader, we didn't like him, so we had him assassinated and replaced with a different type of government, right? All of those things are now leading other countries to question, is it really in my best interest to go, you know, follow the United States without question? Yeah. Or do I sit this one out and think about my own sort of best interest, right? Like India has basically done that with regard to Russia and said, all right, whenever the United States is sanctioning you, we want cheap oil, so right. just sell it to right. us. Right. Like, and we'll stay out of your situation with Ukraine. Right. And that, you know, that is now, we've created a lot of economic incentives for these other countries to say, hey, wait a minute, if I'm not getting like a handout, if I'm not getting the military protection, now what's in it for me? Sure. The like, it doesn't, yeah. And I think that's gonna be a, t it's going to continue to be a tough sell, which all that means is that if we want to support Ukraine, that's like 98% of our bank accounts. And it's going to be like a tough road ahead, whereas Russia is going to start to find places that they can send a little money and get get some real assistance back, uh, which is not, you know, you would be hard pressed to find someone in the United States who would say, well, fine, let them do that. Like that's, if that's where they have to go, they should go. In ter I guess as opposed to, hey, maybe we should rethink it, like what the continuation of this conflict is going to mean for how we unwind it later. Yeah, that's interesting. You're always trying to talk about bring this back to Ukraine. Uh, that's not where I was, I was trying to go with it, but I, I think it's fair. And to your other point where when the United States – for the last few decades, when they were the only game in town, everyone kind of had to play that game. But that kind of circles back to my earlier point, where no longer the only game in town for any of these countries. Debatable how good that is for the world order. Okay, I want to move on to the, ne to the next topic, actually. And you brought up acts of evil. President Bush back in 2002 famously, infamously labeled Iran, Iraq, and North Korea as the axis of evil. Well, we just talked about one of them. And now let's talk about another one is Iran, where you and I have talked several times before, we have treated Iran, there was no kind of blip. The, the blip was maybe in the Obama administration who maybe tried to engage with them a little bit, but certainly in the Bush, Trump, and Biden administrations, there have been no attempts to engage. And it's just been the same way we've treated North Korea largely is isolate, cut them off, sanction them, and hope that they'll eventually come to the table. This kind of like strategic patience idea. Um, well, that hasn't really worked. Didn't Clearly just isn't working in North Korea, and it's also not working in Iran. But that's why I thought one of the – this was really interesting this last week when the United States and Iran engaged in a 10-prisoner swap. So five uh, Americans who were imprisoned in Iran, five Iranians who were imprisoned in the United States were swapped. The Iranians also uh, got access to $6 billion of funds that were theirs, but we had frozen. It's not a great look, but it's – in reality, it's not as bad as it seems. That we six, we're, we're, get, we're giving, we're five prisoners, five prisoners, we're tossing in $6 billion. It's a terrible deal. It actually wasn't that bad of a deal. But I thought that this was an example, and it's 
it's one very small example, but this was an example of the diplomatic process, a thawing in a very small way that potentially could lead to something bigger and more engagement down the line. Yeah. I mean, maybe one small comment about this $6 billion. I think this tactic that we've employed pretty uh, vociferously lately, I will I'll th- maybe th- throw that adjective in there. That Adverb. Adverb. Oh, yikes. Um, that, Former English. <laughs> that uh, the freezing of cash in of basically foreignly held cash in our bank accounts is you know long long story short basically you know the u.s tender is basically the global tender so that if you're if you have iranian currency and you want to buy something in uh, indian rupees it's much yeah Yeah. right exactly it's very difficult to go one-to-one so instead you hold your money in the u.s and then you can you know basically do the the three-way currency conversion this has now been employed obviously against the russians but pretty extensively against iran there's also a lot of money from like the afghan national bank was held and i think the biden administration actually just basically took it um and said you know we're not giving it back this is like reparations for whatever um is going to make it more challenging for us and and we tried to do this similar thing to russia in in other ways by basically making it difficult for them to transact anywhere in rubles and then also not yeah. let them yeah. access. That's been fairly effective. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it has been effective. The flip side is it is going to continue to give pause to other countries who think about, do I really want to put money in U.S. bank accounts, right? Yeah, because yeah. now all of a sudden they are the arbiters. There's no like decision maker that says, okay, this is fair. You guys are doing bad things. We freeze the money. It's the U.S. government just says, tomorrow yeah. I freeze your money, yeah. right? right? And we've talked about how just like the stability of contracts and things like that that you rely on that, hey, if I do this, then you know, if, if X, then Y, all of a sudden someone's like, no. Right. And then, well, okay, then I can't rely on that, so I can't do that anymore. So I think that's probably worth a deeper dive at some point. More... I guess in this specific issue, I one thing I'm interested in your take on is that like in the past it's always been well we don't negotiate with terrorists and the you know the Iranians that we're holding we're holding for all just reasons yeah. and the Americans are being yeah. whole, held that this is all just uh, sort of a farce on the other side is yeah what what do you what do you think about that? Well, I think the Biden administration's done a pretty good job. There hasn't been, I haven't seen a ton of backlash against this. And I think one of the reasons is their marketing of this has been the five Iranians were arrested for nonviolent offenses and they're they're pretty much, they're not a threat to the United States. And I think that's far different than when you're trading prisoners who are in, like we talked about the Griner situation extensively. And that, that was a far, the opt- Credit to the Biden. They've learned, apparently, because the optics of that were terrible. But for this, like the the five people, one of them was arrested in Watertown uh, just here. And he, he hasn't even been convicted of anything. He was being held in prison. He was charged with illicit lobbying. And so like when you start to look at that, illicit lobbying, exporting lab gear, gear um, acquiring military equipment, um, conspiring to export illegal goods, and um, conspiring to steal sensitive information. Like... Maybe those aren't great. Like they, 
some of those three of those people were convicted and that's totally fair but like these aren't necessarily criminal masterminds that are threats to the united states and what i read ricky was two of them are going to iran one of them's going abroad to a different country where his family lives and the two of them are staying here in the united states like their lives i think one of them is the guy from watertown was like my life was here in the united states like i he was arguing he was being wrongly held i don't know anything about his case but like he, he's just going to go back to like living in i think he was a teacher like uh, in probably at a university around here um, and so in that sense i also i don't know why the americans were there maybe they were imprisoned wrongly according to us but i don't know what they were doing over there and so i i I thought this was a very good swap all around. What about, I think the argument was made during the Griner case that like, will this just lead to more people being, being detained? Yeah, yeah, being detained for the possibility of future exchanges. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that point. I, you could argue two could play at that game. You know, if you look at some of these charges over here, I'm not totally sure that these, you know, if, if we want someone that's held in Iran, one just start, you could argue Iran doesn't care about it. But they probably care as much as we care about some of this stuff. You know, I and... So, no, I, I think, I, I, who knows? Yeah, I think it's a fair, it's a fair question. I haven't really given it a ton of thought. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe to close on this, to go back to your original, original point, which is that we're having discussion, negotiation, and this is in some ways trivial, but in some ways like very serious. Yeah. That this it's is not trivial for these ten people. Oh, <laughs> like, of course, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think that's always the. The, uh, the crux of the issue in these sort of government negotiations. Right. Does it matter that it's 10 people or right. do, yeah, do the, do the lives of individuals matter when it comes to these types of things? Anyways, I think regardless of how you view this specific case, the overall yes. feeling yes. is, a, is I think, a positive. No, I totally agree. I, I will say one thing to end on a less positive note. It's... Uh, Last week was the one-year anniversary of the murder of Masa Amini. I might not be pronouncing her name right, but she was a 22-year-old Iranian woman who was beaten to death by the morality police in Iran for not wearing her hijab correctly in, in public. And that led to massive protests and uprising, which were cracked down on really terribly by the hardline Iranian regime. And I think there were at least seven protesters that were immediately put to death. 20,000, I believe, were arrested people even now people that are teaching about what happened are being arrested and so this is exactly all the disclaimers you disclaimers you said about north korea china russia they they apply here too is i am in favor of engaging with this regime diplomatically because i think it's good for united states interests and for global interests that doesn't mean like that what this regime is and what they do and what they stand for isn't still terrible so i uh, figured while we're talking about iran we don't do it too often shouldn't acknowledge like that that terrible death of that that yeah that young woman yeah and and maybe just to, to add to that like the in many ways the diplomacy is our window into what's going on in these places like without any sort of line then they become more or less like a north korea where you you know or you presume to know yeah. that bad things are happening there but you don't actually know because yeah. there's no real connection to the outside yeah. I, every time we talk about iran i say this you go back and look at pictures of iran from before the revolution that's as you know modern day and and uh, really in it the, the history of iran too is there as, as rich in history like uh throughout like hum, human history as any country in the world and so it's just it, it's just such a shame what's happened in that country in the last 40 years 
<laughs> uh, last topic that we wanted to get into, and I guess we we kind of felt we'd be remiss in not talking about it, were the two natural disasters, the earthquake in Morocco and the flood in Libya. The latest figures I saw, Ricky, there were about 3,000 dead in Morocco, with still many missing, and I've seen figures all over the place in the Libyan flood, maybe a minimum of 4,000, but I've seen as many as, as 10 with thousands and thousands of people missing, so... I guess there's there's not a, a ton to say, but if there's anything you want to comment on. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I think it, as far as global news goes, in many ways, we probably should have led with those stories. They're, they're probably the the biggest or, yeah, the big, you know, some of the biggest things that have happened um in in quite some time i i actually i think the numbers that i was seeing on libya were 11,000 or or so confirmed dead with another 20 to possibly 30,000 missing um because of the flooding there um the un is getting together now they've got like a special convention on climate change obviously earthquakes are less linked to what's going on uh from a climate perspective but f- torrential rain and flooding certainly is um yeah i mean it puts a lot into perspective when we talk about sort of conflicts between nations and what we as a world tend to focus on what we feel like is in our control and is not in our control and i think the climate crisis is like several of the things that we've talked about today something that deserves more well certainly more attention but um perhaps more attention from us on this on this podcast because there's probably nothing that's going to impact more people across the globe in the next well that is doing it today and will do it for the next 10 15 20 years on um yeah and it's it's a tragedy i think you know two things you talk about mitigation which is like how do we slow the changing climate so that we can buy ourselves the time to adapt to it? But the second is adaptation. Like how is it possible that in 2023 whole towns could be completely flooded off the map and people would have had no idea. I mean, obviously we know what happened in Hawaii with our sort of the fire, the wildfire alert system, but this is yet another degree and scale yeah. and something that we clearly yeah. need to work on and obviously it's in a world of finite resources you can spend them on weapons you can spend them on whatever like are we spending them in the right place i think i think that's like <laughs> i think the resounding answer you know, is. yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> very obvious where i come down yeah. on this but it's something that's very hard to like extricate yourself yeah, from course. these yeah that's just human that's issues, human nature yeah. right but it is important to take try and take the step back and think about what's going on and think about like what we obviously as americans but more broadly as like a species can do to ensure the existence of ourselves into the future yeah no i think that that's totally fair and just the scale of these these tragedies are really awful. You think the United States, like how terrible the wildfires were, I think was maybe a hundred people. And that's awful. It, Hurricane Katrina for us is the, probably like the pinnacle of natural disasters. 
here in the United States in our lifetimes. I think that was like 1,400. Again, awful, awful numbers. And we're talking about scales larger in both Morocco and in even more so in Libya. And we've talked previously about how these disasters, depending on where they happen, that's the amount of attention they get. I would say that's a, this is another example of that happening. So, yeah. I, there's not a whole lot you can do, I'm sure, if, if you are moved by that. There are places where you can send money to you know, the Red Cross or other organizations doing great work. But, but I guess all we can do is, is th keep those people in our thoughts and, and hope that we, we find this, we keep the casualties to as few as, as possible. And then to your point, OK, that's great for now. But how do we prevent these from happening again and certainly happening at, at the rate that they seem to be happening at how do we prevent that in the future yeah and I, it i mean I, I am going to be curious to see where the polls say something like climate change falls on your like uh sort of your priorities as you go to the polls because it's always been at or near the bottom in like any list of sort of 10 things but with the economy almost always at or near the top but I, I feel like the you know there's study after study showing our flooding in Florida and the tornadoes and whatever and wildfires have, are just continuing to extract billions and billions of dollars from our economy and yet we don't treat them in the same way as you know whatever like a five hundred million dollar bailout of something so yeah I'll be interested to see how our political system kind of adapts to this more existential crisis that's so long-term. It's so anti everything that we think about when we think about politics, which is like short-term, yeah. what can you do for yeah. me? How can you prove it? This is, this is not that, but it's now becoming so evident that we can't ignore it. And obviously many would say that we should not have ever ignored it, but here we are, so where do we go? Great question. Lots to keep an eye on coming from this episode, Ricky. Indeed. Well, again, we hope that this was a pleasant listening experience for you all. It, we would love feedback as always, but also as always, we appreciate you all listening. That's it. That's it for us. Until next time. See you soon. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a ram Somewhere along the line 
You seem to have forgotten that you sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head from folks of different minds because though we did not share. Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Need an early morning bird.